The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it to Romans uh, chapter 12. That's where we're going to be for most of our time uh, together today. And while you're doing that, I want to read to you a quote from someone named John Owen, who's a pastor that lived in the the 1600s. He said this, To preach the word and not to follow it with fervent prayer for its success is to disbelieve its use, neglect its end, and cast away the seed of the gospel. So let's, uh, let's pray before we read our text and talk about our, our message today. God, we just, we simply ask that, that your word would, would penetrate our hearts today. That it would burrow deeply into our souls and into our minds. That we wouldn't just hear these things for, for the sake of wisdom and knowledge, but that we would hear these things for the sake of the transforming work that you desire for it to do. So give us, God, give us open hearts. Help us to receive your word today. It's in your son's name. Amen. So if you are, if you're like me, maybe you've been sitting here for the past couple months as we've been reading through the book of Romans. We've heard a lot of things about what it looks like to be included in God's kingdom. We've heard that, um, we've heard that it's a free gift. We've heard that we actually don't have, have to do anything except receive it. Uh, we've heard that the law itself, adhering to the law as a means of salvation doesn't work. And what that means is, is we can't keep the law perfect enough in order to find our salvation. You've also heard, we've also talked about how, how then just liberty also doesn't work. We can't just do whatever we want to. And sometimes those things seem like they're at odds, and sometimes those things are a bit of a challenge for us. And maybe you're wondering, like, is, is this grace that the Bible has been talking about just to get out of jail free card? Is this gra- does this grace, because of God's grace, does this mean that, that I can just live however I want to? That I don't have any kind of responsibility? My hunch is at least one person in their brain over the past couple months is, has been wondering that. Well, what exactly does all of this mean? If, if God's given it to us and, and we can't earn it and we can't work for it, like, can I just do whatever I want? That sounds like a really great gospel. Well, I would tell you that if, if that's where your mindset has been wandering over the past several weeks in particular, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and 15 of Romans are going to come in pretty hard on you today. They're going to completely flip the script that, that maybe we've been hearing and we've been interpreting in our, in our brains. And let's read, this is Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 1, and it just says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So the Greek begins this chapter with the word, with the English word, therefore, with the Greek word, therefore, and many English translations begin with therefore. 
And I like the way Joe Peterson always talks about it. Whenever you see a therefore, you should wonder what the there is for. Um, but here's what Paul is saying in this text. He's saying, he's saying, because of every single thing that I have just written you, these last several thousand words, in light of all of these things, because of all of these things, because all these things are true, what Paul is saying is, you should worship God properly. So because you're included, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, in light of that reality, you should worship God properly. Because you've been included in God's kingdom, now here are some responsibilities that you have. Here's your role as a Christian. And as I was thinking about this over the past week, um, just this kind of phrase rolled into my head. The question, how should I live, is answered by the question, what do I worship? So when I'm, I'm in any given situation and I'm, I'm wondering what I should do next, I'm wondering what choice I should make. Before I ask that question, what should I do, I ought to pause and I ought to step back and I ought to ask myself, well, well what do I worship? Who am I worshiping? See, these, these first two verses of chapter 12, and we're going to read the second one in a few minutes, these first two verses in chapter 12 really are going to be the lens through which we are going to look at the rest of the book. These two verses guide for us what the next several chapters of the book of Romans look like. And every other thing must be interpreted and understood through their, through their lens. He's told them for 11 chapters that God has freed them from the powers of sin and death through the work of Jesus Christ. They didn't do anything for it. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. He's told them that they have the Holy Spirit who's dwelling inside of them. The Holy Spirit is enabling them to live the kind of life that he's going to soon talk about. And their first, their first responsibility the first thing that they are supposed to do is they are to take their lives and they are to cast them on the altar to worship God. That is step one. And he uses this word body. And there's, that's a Greek word. It's called soma. And it means your entire self. It means everything about you. It's, it's your emotions and your mental state and your, your physical body, your spiritual self, anything that we are as a person is supposed to go onto the altar in sacrifice to God and for what he's done. It's interesting as, as we've been going through Romans over the last several months, I've also been going through the book of Exodus and this past week, I read Exodus chapter 29. And this is in your U version, if you're following along with that. So here's, here's kind of the context for Exodus 29. The people have long left Egypt, and they are receiving the instructions about how they're going to live before they enter into the promised land. And what they're, what's happening is, is they're being part of, set apart for service, especially the priests, the Levitical family is being set aside for the service of God. They've been, they've been included 
And now it's time to worship God faithfully. But they need to do it right. We talked about this before. See, when we read through the Old Testament, we see very strict guidelines on how the Israelites were to worship God. And to make any mistake, if you're familiar with the Old Testament text, to make any mistake could be a death sentence on you. So these priests are being dedicated and and they put on all of the right clothing and they start to do all of these things. And first there's this there's this bull that's been sacrificed for their sin. And then there's then there's this ram. And I'm just going to read this is Exodus 29 verses 15 through 18. Next, Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the head of one of the rams. Then slaughter the ram and splatter its blood against all the sides of the altar. Aren't you glad we don't do this anymore? Like seriously, just pause on that for a minute. Like, we don't have to do this anymore. Cut the ram into pieces and wash off the internal organs and the legs. Set them alongside the head and other pieces of the body. Then burn the entire animal on the altar. This is a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. See, this is, this is a depiction that the whole person is to be dedicated to God. There is nothing of this ram that doesn't go on the altar. It all goes on the altar. This wasn't just, this wasn't just about the priesthood. This is coming forward into our time. And the reality of it is there is nothing cheap about the grace that Paul has been talking about in Romans. It can be simple for us to think that with a fall into this, into this category of, well, we can just do whatever we want to. We've been saved. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. So I can just live however I want to. Is that the message? No, there's nothing cheap about this. Author Beverly Gaventa says this, in this passage in Romans, it emerges that for Paul, grace is both utterly free and utterly costly. It demands everything. See, this grace that Paul has been talking about is a free gift of God. But it demands something of us in return. And what I would encourage you to do sometime this week is read through um, Philippians 3 and Galatians chapter 1 to see, to see the cost for Paul. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Paul was, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew among the Jews. He was, he was a leader. He had everything. He had all this power and prestige and privilege. Like he was in his religious circles. He was the person... That people, if Paul was in the room and they were discussing something from the Old Testament, they're going to turn to Paul and ask him for his interpretation. This is, this is who Paul was. Paul was highly respected. He was highly honored by the Jewish people. And he's, he gives all those things up. He sacrifices who he is for the goodness, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what we have to understand this morning is this is exactly the kind of life that God is calling each and every one of us to. If, if we're followers of Christ, 
this sacrifice of ourselves, this is, this is part of the deal. This isn't, this isn't like next level Christianity. This is part of the deal. See, Paul's been reminding them of all of these things that God has given them. He tells them that they, they were chosen to be God's adopted children. And he's especially talking to the Jews, but this is true for us Gentiles, isn't it? He's given us the right to be an adopted child. He's revealed his glory to them. He's made covenants with them. He gave them his law. And then he said he gave them the privilege of worshiping him. And as I reflected on that word, do you consider it a privilege to worship God? Do you consider it a privilege to sacrifice yourself for God? Or is it an annoyance? Is sacrificing yourself, is worshiping God an inconvenience for you? See, one of the things that we have to understand here is, is there is no aspect of our lives that God cannot lay claim to. There's not a part of, of ourselves, of our identity, that's like tucked in a, in, a, in, a, in a back room where God can have access to all of these things, all of these aspects of our lives, but he, like, he's not allowed to go back there. And that's not, the way, that's not the way this works. That's not the thing that we have been called into because what we worship determines how we live. The way we worship God determines how we live. And we saw that back in Romans chapter 1. Another one, I would encourage you to go back and read Romans 1 this week. See, everything that followed, all of those lists of sins, and I know, I know that as Christians we, we tend to bring up more of those sins than other ones, but all of those lists of sins began with verse 18. And 18 says this, 118 but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. See, this is, a, this is an idea of worship. I know what I should worship. I know what I'm called to worship. But I'm going to suppress that truth. And then through the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 and beyond, Paul's going Paul's to make the point that the thing that's behind all of our sinful actions. Have you ever known that there's something behind your sinful action? Have you ever paused and thought about why you sin in the way that you sin? What's the, what's the thing going on behind that? Where, did that? where did that come from? Where did that compulsion come from? Well, Paul's saying that the thing behind all of our sinful actions is the withholding of worship of God. See, I ought to worship God. I ought to give, um, give honor and glory to God in this moment, but I don't want to. So I'm going to do what I want to do. Continues in chapter 1. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. Instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-loving God, they worshiped idols. They traded the truth about God for a lie and on and on and on and on. See, what happened was, it wasn't just their sin that separated them from God. It's not just our sin that has separated us from God. It's, it's what we're worshiping that does. When we worship things that are not God, 
It's called idolatry. And I love this. I love this phrase from Beverly Gaventa as well. She says, he, Paul, is talking to them about idolatry. But the problem with the Christian use of that term in the present is that we think it doesn't have anything to do with us. What we think of when we think of the word idolatry is like maybe a room with a bunch of false gods on it, little statues, pieces of metal, pieces of wood. But that's not what idolatry is. Idolatry, Gaventa continues, is withholding worship. This is the cause of a host of distorted practices. And I think when we bring that word worship into the mix, that's where many of us start to, start to, start to go wrong. And we tried to, this past summer, we tried to break you of this with eight weeks um, talking about worship. But I think for many of us, we interpret worship as, a, as a, something that happens in a fixed time, in a fixed place. We think that what we do here is worship. We think that what happens here is worship. We think we're going to go to church to worship. Because that's what we do at 1015 on Sunday mornings. But that's just objectively not true. See, this can be worship. Well, it is worship because we're always worshiping. Did you know that? We're always worshiping something. All of our lives are to be demonstrations and actions of worship. Our whole lives. And the reality is, is God knows. God knows what is, if we are congruent with what we are claiming to worship. See, what I do outside of this place, the way I treat my neighbor, the way I drive my car, the way I take my trash out, like those are all activities of worship. And maybe the trash one's a little much for you. So I'll ask you this. When I walk out into our alley, and I see our dumpster back there. If I just take the garbage bag and throw it. And it doesn't land in the garbage. And I just leave it. Who am I worshiping? See, I'm worshiping myself. See, every single thing that we do is worship. God demands everything. And one of the questions that we have to wrestle with this morning is, is have we given it to him? Have we given it to him? We just throw the garbage in the alley and a cup falls out and, I mean, somebody will get that, right? Like, what are we, what are we worshiping? Here's verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, when we read this, this text, when we read this verse, 
what we really need to do is, is press pause and we need to recognize that there, are, that there are customs and behaviors of the world. There are customs and behaviors. There's a way that the world operates. And we have to recognize this. And, and in the world that Paul was speaking to, he talked about this in Romans chapter 1. Here's a refresher. It was simple. They had one gospel, and it was the gospel of Caesar. If you were in the Roman Empire, if you were alive at this point and a part of the empire, the good news was Caesar was God, and peace and security was found in him. That's, that's your good news right there. And the way that Caesar brought this good news, the way that this peace and security was made real was through the sword. So Caesar has come, he's going to bring peace and security, he's bringing a sword. With 30% of their population enslaved, their entire empire was built on the oppression of other people. This was, this was good news, believe it or not. Slaves were status symbols. Slaves were paraded in front of other people as a demonstration of power and authority and wealth. And the emperor was worshipped along with the state. And we found this, this connection between religion and power. And this was the good news. This is, this is the way the world worked. And if everybody in the Roman Empire would just get with the system, would just give themselves over to this, then we'll have this little thing called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And they actually had this for about 200 years, although depending on where you were in the system was a determiner of whether or not you had peace. And if we distilled these behaviors and customs down into one word, what we would find is power. See, this was the, this, these were the behaviors and the customs of the Roman Empire. It was about power. And the whole struggle of the church at Rome was about the worship of false gods. Maybe you thought it was about the law. Well, for the Jewish believers, many of them, the false god was the law. For the Gentiles, many of them anyway, their false god was freedom. See, they were, they were giving into this idolatry. They were worshiping an untrue reality of who God was. And what Paul says is, you guys need to, you guys need to stop your false worship and put yourselves on the altar. Stop worshiping the law. Stop worshiping freedom and worship me. And the only way you're going to be able to accomplish this is by putting yourself on the altar. So then we have to ask as we think about this, because remember the, the Bible isn't to us, but it's for us. So that means there's something for us in this. What we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, well, what are the behaviors and customs of our world? Because if the Roman Empire had behaviors and customs, then surely we do. There's a way that our, the world works. And we have these things and the great technical term is called plausibility structures. 
And here's the definition. A plausibility structure is the socio-cultural context for systems of meaning within which these meanings make sense or are made plausible. And again, here's what that means. It's just the way the word works. It's how we explain things in our culture. It's a system that's within us. And here in the West, we have, we have three main plausibility structures. And you'll see, you'll see how they all work together. Um, the first one is mechanistic. We believe that things are done by a physical process alone. So what we do, we spend our time setting up a system. And if we can just get everyone to follow that same system, then we're going to get something on the other side, right? So think standardized tests. That's what a standardized test is. If everybody just, if we just get everyone into a classroom and we teach them all the exact same thing, and isn't this absolutely ridiculous? Because don't people have different backgrounds and socioeconomic um, situations and, and come from different places and have different family units? But see, what we've done is we've, we've convinced ourselves that if we can get everybody into the same room and teach them all the exact same thing, then eventually we're going to get the same product. So you're mechanistic. We're also naturalistic. What this means is we are skeptical of the supernatural. A friend of mine yesterday, Brent Holiday, posted this on Facebook. He said, if you and I suspend belief at every encounter with mystery, we will spend large portions of our lives not believing. See, we are, we are naturalistic. When something supernatural happens, we, we don't believe it. We don't buy it. We, have, we wonder if there's something else going on. I've had a few supernatural experiences in my own life. When I was in high school, um, one of the languages I loved taking was Spanish. When I went to college um, and I was pursuing a degree, secondary education, I was going to teach history, but I wanted a minor in Spanish, so I started studying more Spanish. I loved studying Spanish. I got to spend time in Mexico like on a, on a learning um, tour, learning about Spanish. And then in 1998, I found myself in San Luis Potosi, Mexico on a mission trip talking to this, his, this Mexican pastor. And there was another person who was there with me who was an American who didn't speak any Spanish. And we were having this conversation. And I was understanding everything he was saying and he was understanding everything I was saying. And the third person in the group who didn't know any Spanish, she understood the conversation. Now, I could say, you know what? I had years and years and years and years of Spanish. And maybe in some moment of brilliant recall, God, like, like the matrix, downloaded all that Spanish right into the back of my head. Or there was something supernatural at stake. Because a few years later, Ann and I were on vacation in Mexico. We rented a car. And there was a detour on the road and we got lost. So we're driving through downtown Cancun. And that's not the hotel zone. We're driving through downtown Cancun. And I pull over and there's a policeman there. And I'm like, like... If what happened in 1998 had been just recall, 
Like I would have been able to have this great conversation with this Mexican policeman. But I was asking him all these questions and he said a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm like, okay. And I rolled the window up and I just looked at Dan. I'm like, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> right? See, we tend to write off the supernatural. And there have been times as I reflect back on that story, I wonder, like, did that really happen? Maybe, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe I remember that wrong. And then here's, here's the third thing that we need to remember as Westerners. We're shaped by the enlightenment. And what that means is we are overly confident in the intellect to solve all of our problems. See, what we think is we can math or science our way out of any problem. Ann and I listened to this podcast a couple years ago. It was about German chemist Fritz Haber. He received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1918. He discovered how to turn atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia, which was one of the most significant finds of 20th century science. It enables the manufacture of fertilizers. Amazing. He's also known as the father of chemical warfare because he invented mustard and chlorine gas. See, we can, we can think that math and science are going to solve our problems, but, but they don't solve our sin problem. Math and science might be able to feed billions, but it can't fix our sin problem and these three things, they form our Western worldview. And I wonder, do you see how they, how they work together to present to us a behavior and a custom? Like, this is, just, this is just how we think. And the hardest thing about this is they surround us and permeate us. We can't get away from them. It's the air that we breathe. If we were fish, it would be the water we swim in. Like, we can't help but think naturalistically. Did you know that the average 8 to 10-year-old looks at a screen for six hours a day. The average 11 to 14-year-old looks at a screen for nine hours a day. The average 15-year-old, seven and a half hours a day. Adults, how much time do you spend looking at screens? How much time do you look at these things? See, I've, I joked about this a few weeks ago. See, I've actually had to go into my phone. There's this thing called limits, right? It's crazy. There's actually a way they've designed this feature on their phone where you can limit how much access you have to your own phone because you don't have self-control to not do it yourself, right? It's great. I love it. So I've had to go, like seriously, I had to go and I had to do this because I can, I can feel like the, the siren call of my phone in the morning, right? It's just there wanting to let me know all the things that I missed since I went to sleep the night before, right? So your phone has this feature. And what I'm, what I'm finding is once I get locked out, like I have to find something to do. So I've done crazy things. Read a book. Like, I've talked to my wife. I mean, we, we have conversations. Like, we are so, we're so in the mix of our culture that we just don't even notice it. There's this word 
and other Christian faith traditions use this word. It's called catechism. Maybe if you didn't grow up in the, in the Christian church, Church of Christ, maybe you heard that word catechism. Maybe you went through catechism when you were a child. For me, we were Presbyterian, so we didn't use the word catechism. We called it confirmation. But it's this idea coming from a Greek word, this idea of being taught. And see, here's, here's reality. Each and every one of us, every single day, we are constantly being catechized by our culture. Our culture is constantly teaching us something, telling us something, proclaiming a truth about a reality, about something. And every time you turn on the TV and every time you watch a show and every time you watch a movie, you are being catechized by our culture. Every time you watch TikTok for an hour and a half, because those 15-second videos are hilarious, you're being catechized. And we don't even know it. And this is why we need to allow God to transform us into a new creature. Because we've, we've been so filled with falsehood that we can't even recognize it. So this is going to require an action of God in your life, and you must allow it. We had this great conversation last week in Pastor Review about verse 2. But let God transform you. See, that sounds very passive. I'm going to allow God to do something, and that's true, but I have to allow it, which is active. See, I have to make a decision over what I'm going to allow to catechize me today. Over what I'm going to allow to catechize me in this moment. And maybe you think that you're not susceptible to all of this. Maybe you think that your device isn't catechizing you. Paul has something really interesting to say in verse 3. Don't worry, I know how much time I got. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. You ready? Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. See, some of us think that we're better than we really are because the only person or the only thing that we've ever compared ourselves to is everybody else. And since everybody else is on their catechizing device far more than me, like I'm better than they are. And what's so fascinating about this text is God isn't telling you to compare yourself to other people. He's telling you to compare yourself to him. Other people aren't our standard. God is. And what we worship determines how we live. See, what we were being catechized into determines how we live. The things that we fill our time with and our energy with and our efforts with and all of those things, those things are, those things are teaching us something. And in a large part, what they're teaching us is that we are God. Which is why we're called to throw ourselves onto the altar. And this idea, present your bodies, isn't, isn't just some individualistic thing that we do because that would be very Western as well. 
because that's also one of our plausibility structures is we're very individualistic. I don't need anyone else to tell me how to live the Christian life because I can just read my Bible. I don't have anything to learn from anyone else. I can just read my Bible. But we're being called to present ourselves. And what I love about this is Paul shows us what that looks like. Let's read. Let's start at verse 4. This is what I want to penetrate into your heart today. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift of showing kindness to others, do it gladly. See, this is everyone. This catches everyone. Basic Christianity. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who curse you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. See what's so awesome about these verses? We don't even have to explain them. But here's the thing. We have to do them. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And see what happened was... The church in Rome heard this message and then they heard the next three chapters, which we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. And something crazy happened. They changed the entire world through their obedience. See, they were just faithful. There was nothing special about them. In fact, like when you read this, it kind of sounds like they were a bunch of jerks to each other. They weren't serving each other, so they needed to be told to serve one another. And God used them to change the world. To flip the plausibility structures of Caesar is God. And it started with who they worshipped. It was to get their eyes off of themselves. And it was to put them on God. The Christian life is about sacrifice. So are you sacrificing yourself? The Christian life is about humility and the recognition that we are to serve God and love others. Are you humble? The Christian life is 
is that we are included, reveals that we're included in God's kingdom. This is our demonstration. See, we are called to faithfully demonstrate that we have been saved. That's what it means to proclaim Jesus as Lord. It doesn't mean that we have to stand on the street corner with a sign that says Jesus is Lord. See, we're supposed to live like Jesus is Lord. We're supposed to act like Jesus is Lord. We're not only supposed to treat one another like Jesus is Lord, we're supposed to treat the world like Jesus is Lord. Because chapter 13 is coming and it's the one about government next week. And that's where Paul is going to start this little thought experiment that he has called the gospel of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you displaying the reality of what God has done in your life? This is what it means for us to sacrifice. This is what it means for us to give. I'm going to read that John Owen quote again. To preach the word and not to follow it with fervent prayer for its success is to disbelieve its use, neglect its end, and cast away the seed of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we ask again that you would penetrate our hearts with your word that you would help us to see what we are worshiping and how that leads to our actions. Help us to see how we've considered ourselves more highly than we ought and how this pride and arrogance hinders our worship and our response to you. Help us to live the normal Christian life, to recognize that these things are neither unrealistic expectations, nor are they for next level Christians. These things are for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Living these things out will require us to present ourselves as living sacrifices. They will require us to cast aside our ideas, our ideals, our mindsets, and our preferences over to you and your will for our lives. Help us to see, God, that being included in your kingdom is not without cost and that it is your spirit and not our hard work that enables and empowers us to live rightly. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.